The Battle of Iwo Jima was a monumental endeavor. Over 100,000 soldiers, sailors, and Marines were part of the fight. Though ultimate victory was assumed, it wasn't going to be an easy battle. The U.S. forces would have no element of surprise. The enemy knew they were coming. In fact, the Japanese garrison on the island was surprised that no attack came in the summer of 1944. Instead, this onslaught began in February of 1945, which gave the Japanese forces ample time to dig in and fortify their position, creating miles of underground tunnels with bunkers some 75 feet deep, beach pillboxes whose walls were made of four-foot-thick reinforced concrete. Having that extra time to prepare led to one of the bloodiest battles in American history. There were other troubles. Coming out of the water, Marines found that the beaches were not as they had been described by the battle planners. They had been told that the beaches were excellent and they'd have no trouble at all. What they found were tall slopes of volcanic ash blocking their advance as obstacles. And then there was also an issue of personal cargo. Listen to what one historian writes. He says, Marines were trained to move rapidly forward. Here they could only plod. The weight and amount of equipment was a terrific hindrance, and various items were rapidly discarded. First to go was the gas mask, regarded as an unnecessary trapping. And the book of Joshua gives us the history of the nation of Israel finally entering into their promised land and the battles fought there. Uh, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, descendants of Abraham, had been promised that this land of Canaan was going to be theirs forever, many centuries before. Uh, long after Abraham, they had spent 400 years as slaves in the land of Egypt. They had wandered 40 years in the wilderness, and so finally, they're entering into the land. When they did, Israel's fighting force was huge, but that doesn't mean that the conquest would be easy. Now, here in chapter 5, we see God's people just after they have miraculously crossed the Jordan River. The Lord parted the Jordan River for them as he had parted the Red Sea. They've established a sort of beachhead camp within Canaan, and now all that is left to do is start the invasion. Except that the Lord holds them back, and he shows them that there is an obstacle that they need to deal with. There is unnecessary weight hindering them that must be shed before they can proceed. It will mean a significant delay. They're going to lose the element of surprise. But in this passage, we learn that God cares much more about our closeness with him than any conquest we are attempting in life. Our connection with him is the most important consideration in any advance, in any endeavor, any phase, any arena you find yourself in. Your closeness to God is the most important thing to think about no matter where you find yourself today. So let's look at verse 1. When all the Amorite kings across the Jordan to the west and all the Canaanite kings near the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the water of the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, they lost heart and their courage failed because of the Israelites. Terror had gripped the hearts of the entire land from the mountains to the sea. Canaanites described the tribes living by the sea. Amorites described those living in the hills and mountains. Joshua, as many of you are familiar with, had sent spies to Jericho to bring back a report from that first city they were going to attack, and the spies verified this fearfulness firsthand. Through Rahab, the Israelites learned that the people of Canaan were indeed in an absolute panic. 
They knew God had dried up the Red Sea to allow the Israelites to cross. They knew that King Sihon and Og had already been destroyed with their armies on the other side of the river. And so the Canaanite courage had completely failed and melted away. But at least they would have thought they had the natural barrier of the Jordan River. That would hold them back, they would have thought. It was the time of year when the Jordan flooded over its banks But that was no more a barrier than the Red Sea had been to God's people. And so imagine the fear that the scouts of Canaan would have had as they watched the hosts of Israel stepping into their land while the waters of the Jordan were piled up far apart. They were unhindered. They were, uh, had arrived months sooner than expected. We need to realize that these were real events. Uh, the, the people of Canaan knew that this, uh, this group of Hebrews coming out of Egypt had moved all the way through the wilderness. They had destroyed these other uh, you know, pagan kings and their armies. And they had heard that they were coming to their land. And so they would have been sending scouts just like Israel was sending scouts. And so they would have heard word that, hey, the waters just parted and they're here. These incredible feats caused Rahab to conclude this, Your God is God in heaven above and earth below, she said. And then she pled for mercy. She asked for her life and the lives of her family to be spared. Now this opening verse, giving us the, the condition of the Canaanite people, it's a good place to sort of pause and address any person listening today who is not a Christian. If you've never been born again, this is you in this verse. The God of the Bible is real. And he is the God of heaven and earth. You may not worship him, but that doesn't change the fact that he is true and he is alive and he is coming. He has promised that he is coming back again. And when he comes, he comes with wrath in his hand to judge the earth. The fate of those who will not believe in him is just like those in Canaan. If you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, we're here to tell you today that you face a battle that you cannot win with an unstoppable God, one who is not hindered by things like rivers or oceans or atmospheres or human power or fortifications or anything like that. You, you can't stop the Lord's coming. And he has promised very clearly that he is coming again to save his people and judge his enemies. Listen to these two passages. First Zephaniah 1.18. It says, There's so and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. And then in Romans 2, verses 5 through 8, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Very straightforward. If you're not a Christian, we would plead with you today to be like Rahab. Because right now, as an unbeliever, you are under the wrath of God, and that wrath is sure and coming, whether you believe it or not. But you could be like Rahab. Maybe you know her story. She and her family were the only people in all the city of Jericho who raised the white flag when God came. They said, we surrender, we believe, we want to be saved. And they were not refused. She talked with the spies of Israel. She said, listen, we see what's coming. We believe your God is true. Please save us. And even though she also was a pagan Canaanite, because she turned in repentance and belief to God, the Lord was was 
happy to save her, excited to save her and her family. In fact, when the walls of Jericho came down, Rahab's house was on the wall, and that section of the wall the Lord spared from even falling down. He said, you stay in this house. Anyone in this house is going to survive as long as they stay in here. And the Lord made good on that. He saved them. And anyone else in the city could have made that choice, but they wouldn't, and so they perished. And so if you're not a Christian here today, don't make the same mistake. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but surrender to the Lord who loves you and who died to save you. Verse 2 of our passage says this, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelite men again. So we're back at the camp of Israel, but there's a delay. Now, human strategists would have said, we can't wait. We need to take advantage of this momentum we have. We're out, you know, exposed in the field there in their cities that they can fortify. We need to rush in and just use the element of surprise, use the fact that they're not quite ready for us to be here and and get this thing going. They had reliable intelligence. That enemy morale was completely destroyed. Now was not the time to hesitate, but to rush forward to victory. At least that would have been the discussion around the table if only human beings were discussing it. But God doesn't care about any of those human strategies. He's not worried about that at all. He tells Joshua, no, no, we're going to wait here a while because there is a nationwide issue that needs to be dealt with. It's interesting. There was a nationwide issue, but it was also a very personal issue. All the men needed to be circumcised. Now, the text there says, again, they needed to be circumcised again, but that doesn't mean that these fellows had been circumcised before and were being circumcised a second time. It's explained for us in verses 4 and 5, so drop down there. This is the reason Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out were circumcised, none of the people born in the wilderness along the way were circumcised after they had come out of Egypt. And so the big question is, of course, why was this whole generation of men uncircumcised? Uh, There's debate about it. Some think that it was because when their fathers had refused to enter the promised land 40 years earlier, God had perhaps forbidden circumcision as a symbol that they were breakers of the covenant. Some suggest that since they had to sort of follow the pillar of cloud and fire around and they never knew when it was going to move, it would have been impractical to carry out the procedure in the wilderness. Uh, That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. It's like babies are doing a lot of marching, but that's just me. Others point to the spiritual indifference of their parents' generation. And, you know, we can't be exactly sure why this whole generation wasn't uncircumcised, but we can say that the book of Exodus and and Numbers, this whole period of the wilderness wandering, man, did they demonstrate so many times over and over and over again their spiritual indifference to the Lord. The Lord who is visible in their midst, the Lord who was providing for them miraculously, the Lord who was protecting them, who was was physically shielding them with, with shade and giving them water from a rock and giving them manna to eat every single day. And yet again and again, we see them just indifferent and complaining and, and, and refusing to believe the Lord and rebelling against the Lord. And so, uh, we're not exactly sure, but we can be uh, certain that we're told in verse six that their disobedience is highlighted. And so we can't be sure why all of these guys weren't circumcised, but those are a couple of thoughtful ideas. 
But here's the important thing. After decades of wandering, after crossing the Jordan, after finally stepping foot into that land that had been the focus of God's promise to Abraham's descendants for hundreds and hundreds of years, God says, wait, we have a spiritual issue that needs to be addressed right now. Before anything else happens, we need to deal with this. There is a gap in your faith that needs to be corrected, and nothing is more important than that. And so the Lord holds them back. Using flint knives wasn't something that God had required of Abraham back when circumcision was first instituted for the Hebrews. And so it draws our thoughts back to that infamous moment when Moses had left the burning bush and he set off to be the big bad deliverer of the people of Israel. And what do we learn? He had failed to circumcise his own son and that failure led to a very strong reaction from God. We're shocked when we read that God says, oh, you're heading out to be the deliverer and you haven't circumcised your own son? Okay, I'm going to kill you. That's what, that's what the text says, and it's a shocking thing to read. Until Moses' wife Zipporah heroically takes a flint knife and circumcises their boy right there on the spot. And so in both of these cases, the urgency and the opportunity and the significance of what God wanted to do and this great calling that he had put on their lives, all of that was secondary to faithful personal obedience. He says, hey, do this thing first. And in both cases, Moses and then these men here, this basic spiritual devotion to God had not been carried out. And yet they wanted to move forward into something else that the Lord wanted to do in their lives. And God said, you have to wait. You have to wait and deal with this issue first. The Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way. Consecration must precede conquest. There was some unfinished business and it was spiritual in character. It was time for renewal. Spiritual renewal, faithful, obedient devotion to God is more important than any effort we are undertaking, even if it is an effort we are doing for the Lord. Even if it's something that he has asked us to do, something that he has put into our hearts as a desire, faithful obedience is more important than the activity of those things. Put together here, we have this wonderful example of how a true living faith in the God of the Bible operates. God sat them down and he said, I can see that you believe, but your belief in my promises has to work itself out in real life obedience. Because this group of people, they did believe. They crossed the Jordan. They stepped through the river. They were ready to receive what had been offered to them. But first, they were going to have to personally and nationally obey. Faithfulness is demonstrated in obedient activity. Without obedience, what, what use is our faith? In the New Testament, the Apostle James puts it this way, faith without works is dead. And he says, faith without works is useless. And so that's what we're talking about. At the same time, it wasn't just that God wanted each of these men to do this physical thing and sort of check a box. Hey, you can't advance until you check this box. And once you do that, then you're good to go. Uh, that's, that's not what God is about. This really is about personal devotion, personal fidelity to the Lord. The Lord wanted their hearts. And, and a heart connection to God is going to work itself out through actual obedience. But the Lord wanted their hearts. This generation of Israelites in the book of Joshua had been given Deuteronomy, which was a retelling of God's law and retelling of his intentions for his people. And again and again in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord spoke to them about their hearts and filling the heart with the word of God and following the Lord from the heart. 
Here's one example from Deuteronomy 30 that connects to what we're reading today. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. That's what God wanted. The physical circumcision was the act of a faith that was rooted in the heart. It was an acknowledgement that the spiritual relationship between God and man was the most important part of everything they were doing or would do. Everything else was secondary. Everything else could wait. And this is not just an Old Testament tribes of Israel principle. This is still the spiritual truth for us today. Now, not that we are to follow the Mosaic law. We're not. Christ fulfilled the law. We no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, we live in the freedom of God's grace, Romans chapter 6 says. But in this Joshua story, we learn that the most important objective that you and I have in life is to be in step with the Lord, to be devoted and set apart to Him, obeying what He says, not just in thought, not just in philosophy, but obeying in real action through our lives. For the New Testament believer, circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. Romans 2.29. It means to be a person who is submitted to the Word of God and in a personal relationship with Him. A relationship where we worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. That has to come before any effort that we hope to succeed in. And so as you are living life and are looking at life and are in different circumstances and in different phases, you know, if you want to have meaningful life success in your place in history, whether it's your marriage or your parenting or your field of study and your other relationships and whatever campaign you find yourself in, the first consideration is heart circumcision. Because from the heart, the mouth speaks. From the heart, the the life acts. From the heart comes obedience. And when we obey, God's grace works itself out through our lives in powerful ways that we could not accomplish on our own. And as we can, you know, we can see God's astounding grace on display in this passage. You know, a lot of this starts to think, well, we have to do things, otherwise God is mad at us. That's not what's happening at all. We see an astounding amount of God's grace, even in a passage like this. Think about it. None of these men were circumcised. The one thing that designated Hebrews as being members of a covenant with God since the time of Abraham. That was the one thing that God had said to Abraham, hey, I'm making a covenant with you and your descendants forever, and I'm going to do it. It's an unconditional covenant. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to bring the Messiah through you. All these incredible things. He says, and the one thing that you're going to do in order to show that you agree to this covenant is this, circumcision. And, And they had been doing that for generations and generations, and then nobody in this generation is circumcised. But God didn't say, well, all of you are in violation of the covenant, and so I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. No, he didn't do that. He didn't say, hey, you voided the contract, and so I'm not on the hook to bless you anymore. He didn't do any of that. The one thing that had been designated for them to do, they had not done for 40 years. And yet, even though they were all outside the agreement... Even though none of these men were qualified to partake in the Passover, which means they had not celebrated even Passover for 40 years in the wilderness, God says, yeah, I'm still going to be with you. 
I'll still walk with you. I'll still be your light and your shield. I'll still provide food for you. I'll still lead you forward. I'll still hang out with you, even though we were all supposed to go into the promised land 40 years ago. And this whole generation of people biffed it and said, we don't care about what God says. We don't care about who God is. We're going to do our own thing. He says, yeah, I'll hang out in the desert with you guys too. And I'm going to walk with you. Oh, it's, it's Passover week. You're not celebrating Passover because none of you are circumcised? Oh, okay, I'm still going to be with you. I'm still going to build you up. I'm still going to protect you. I'm still going to lead you on. Oh, some enemies are coming to attack you? I'll still use you to destroy them and make sure that you're safe. I'll still make sure your sandals and your, your clothes don't wear out and that you have adequate water and none of your flocks or herds die there in the desert. He did all of these things for 40 years he led them and he made the way for them and he did the impossible for them. Why? Because he loved them so much. Not because they were checking boxes. Not because they earned his grace. Not because they were so good that he owed them something. Quite the contrary. When they were faithless, he remained faithful. And that is still true today. Because God is faithful to every generation. That is the grace of God. And this is the grace that the Lord says, I want to use this grace to shape and permeate and flow through your life as a Christian. But God's grace cannot operate in a heart that is hardened against the Lord and is walking in rebellion or at least disobedience to the Lord. But here we find that they were at a turning point. Right? It's not that just God said, well, you guys aren't doing anything I've asked you to do. Who cares? We'll just be kind of gracious together forever. No, he brought them to a moment of decision. This was a turning point. They're in the land. Would they submit and do what God asked, even though it would be difficult, even though it would be contrary to human wisdom? Would they go God's way and say, yes, Lord, we believe and we believe enough to obey? Or would they not do that? Verse 3. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelite men at Gibeath Haraloth. No montage here of training the troops or making weapons of war. Every battle movie has that scene, whether it's Shang-Chi or The Last Samurai or The Two Towers. Pick your favorite sort of battle movie. There is always the scene where the people, Kung Fu Panda, that's another one, Kung Fu Panda 3. Love Kung Fu Panda. Kung Fu Panda 3, he has to train all the pandas how to like fight against the enemies that are coming and they make all their armaments and this is in every battle movie, right? The fight's coming, so what do we have to do? We have to prepare. We have to make swords. We have to make shields. We have to make booby traps. It's like Home Alone in all of these movies. They have to set all these traps up and they have to teach, you know, peasants how to shoot bows and arrows in 30 minutes, you know, straight as a, as a bullseye, all that kind of stuff. It's always in those movies. No montage like that here. The only thing Joshua makes is ceremonial knives. There would be no combat practice, just long days of recovery. Uh, most of us... <laughs> most of us can think of that image... <laughs> most of us can think of that image of the flag being raised at Iwo Jima... It's an incredible image, right? It's one that sticks in your memory. If you've seen it once, it's in there. Why? Because it is so monumental. Because it, it causes us to consider what it cost. And it causes us to consider what it was for. And why it mattered. Because on, on one level, it's just a, a picture of guys raising a flag. But as soon as you understand what it is, it, 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 it takes on a huge significance in your mind. As you realize that this is a pivotal moment in world history. And I think there's an incredible image like that, uh, an incredible symbol here in verse 3. 
The name Gibeath Ha'arloth means hill of the foreskins. Gross, but that's what it means. Now, according to the census given in the book of Numbers, more than 600,000 men would have been circumcised that day. Though somewhat grotesque, obviously grotesque, what an incredible testimony this would have been to their obedience and their faith. A, a visible, horrifying monument to their willingness to cut away anything that put distance between them and the Lord. Uh, their willingness to shed anything that would slow down that which he wanted to accomplish in their lives. It was a visible, bloody symbol of their trust in God. In the same way that the raising of the flag of Iwo Jima is a, is a, a sobering, bloody image because of what it cost and what it was, but we see, yeah, but we know why it mattered. And so this would have been a, a sobering image to look upon if you were there that day. Drop down to verse 6. For the Israelites wandered in the wilderness 40 years until all the nation's men of war who came out of Egypt had died off because they did not obey the Lord. So the Lord vowed never to let them see the land he had sworn to their ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. He raised up their sons in their place. It was these Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised since they had not been circumcised along the way. I think the most striking thing in those verses is to see the earlier generation described as men of war. That's what the Lord had wanted them to be. They were supposed to be the conquest generation. They were supposed to be the ones that to receive the land of promise. And they refused. It's not that God held them out. They refused to go in. The Lord had wanted so much to give them the land and to have victories in it. He wanted to give them the vineyards and the cities and all of these great... He said, I want you to have the land flowing with milk and honey. And they said, we don't want to. And so instead of becoming men of war that God had wanted them to be, they were men of wilderness, wanderers, who, who accomplished very little. Instead, they became men of complaining, men of grumbling, men of resentment, men of disbelief, though God was working all around them in all sorts of ways. They chose a fleshly way of living with a human mindset instead of trusting the Lord. And so, others were raised up in their place. Not because God was trying to be vengeful or petty, but because he, they, he said, let's go in the land. And they said, no. They said, okay. Your will be done, everybody. I guess we'll hang out in the desert and you'll die out here then. And it's really a sad thing. God had wanted for the previous generation what this generation was going to have, but they would not have it, and so others were raised up in their place. Yeah, the first generation fought in a few battles, but they gave away the chance to become the conquest generation. Their unwillingness to obey, their unwillingness to trust the Lord, resulted in a life of wandering. They ultimately made no progress. They just squandered their days walking around in the desert. It's a, it's a, 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 a very futile story. They came, out of, they came out of slavery. They came out of Egypt. They came through the Red Sea. They saw Pharaoh and his armies destroyed in a moment. They saw the Shekinah glory of God walking in their midst. They saw the angel of the Lord. They saw water from the rock. They saw the manna and the quail. They saw all of these different things. They saw the thunderings of Mount Sinai, heard the voice of the Lord speaking to them. They had all of these things, and yet they said, yeah, but 
kind of uncomfortable, I kind of would like more, you know, comfort, I kind of would like this, that, or the other thing. I'm going to give in to complaining, I'm going to give in to a human mindset, I just want to think about how, you know, other humans would have done this, that, and the other thing, and so we don't want to go in. Is the Lord even real? Who's Moses? And so they wasted their entire lives just walking around in the desert, just wandering from place to place, making no progress, making no impact, having none of the real blessings that God wanted them to have. God does not want to bless those who won't submit to his leading. In the book of Proverbs, we're told that to reject God's wisdom and to reject his commands makes you a fool. And a fool we're told, wastes any treasure he finds. And in the book of Proverbs, a fool is the worst thing that you can be. And effectively, Proverbs says, man, if you're a fool, there's almost no hope for you. Because we just, we can't tell you anything, you're not going to learn anything, and you're just going to waste whatever you've been given. God isn't going to help us waste our lives. If we're going to act spiritually foolish by refusing to trust Him and refusing to obey and refusing to go His way, then why would God say, I'm going to bless that. I'm going to help you waste your life. I'm going to help you dishonor my name. I'm going to help you just be the opposite of what I've made you to be. The Lord wants incredible things for us, but if we refuse Him, then He will raise up others to be used in our place. It's not what He wants to do, but it is what He will do. That was Mordecai's message to Esther, remember. He says, hey man, this is your opportunity, but if you don't do it, the Lord will raise up someone else to do it. And so the people of God are brought to moments of decision where will we trust the Lord and trust Him enough to actually obey what He's saying, even if it seems contrary to human strategy or human philosophy, even if it means we have to have a painful obedience, even if it means we have to cut something away in our life that we don't really want to, will we obey? Verse 8, after the entire nation had been circumcised, they stayed where they were in the camp until they recovered. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore, that place is still called Gilgal today. This was a time before ice or Tylenol. Uh, and so, these were not easy days. Uh, medical resources, a few medical resources that I consulted about this issue put the recovery time for adult males between 10 days and 6 weeks with things like ice and Tylenol. So not only would they lose the element of surprise and give their enemies lots of time to fortify, which they did. We find uh, in Joshua chapter 6 that, yeah, they went to Jericho and they fortified that city. Of course, we know none of that matters. The city came down in an instant. But on top of all of that, The army of Israel in this moment became weak and vulnerable. Now they were the ones that should be scared from a human way of thinking. Because they only had God to protect them. They couldn't fight. They were all weakened. From a military planning perspective, this was absolute folly. Sometimes God's commands put us in a position like this. But we don't have to fear being vulnerable in God's hands. Remember, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Life isn't about strategy. It's about trusting the Lord. From a human perspective, this was as weak as the army of Israel would ever be. But they were not in any danger whatsoever because the Lord was their shield. The Lord was their front and rear guard. Any battle strategist would have said that day, we've lost our advantage. It's going to be much harder now to win any victory because we spent all this time doing something that is unimportant. But in reality, this was the most important thing they could have done. One of the lessons of the book of Joshua teaches us that the 
only thing that could defeat Israel was Israel, was their unwillingness to obey God, was their unwillingness to side with God and go His way. If they sinned, if they forgot God, if they embraced their own wisdom instead of the Lord, that's the only thing that could stop what God wanted to do in and through their lives. Because when they were walking with God in the book of Joshua, we say we see that walls don't matter, chariots and horses don't matter, even the sun moving in the sky doesn't matter. Because when they were walking with the Lord, the Lord's like, just go ahead. Nobody's even going to die in this battle except your enemies. It's a mind-blowing thing. The same principle is true spiritually for us. No weapon formed against us can succeed. Nothing in the world can overcome us. No temptation is too great for us to withstand under the power of the Spirit. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But then why do we fall short? Why do we find, sometimes get defeated? Why do we sometimes not lay hold of all of those things? Well, it's because we fall into the traps by failing to believe and obey what the Lord has told us and where he is leading us. When we leave the camp of his grace and go far afield after our own desires and our own strategies and our own destinations, that's when we fall into defeat. When we trust God and stand in his truth, there isn't anything to fear, no matter how vulnerable and weak we may be. Because the Lord's strength is vast and with it he prepares us for every circumstance and adversary of life. What was the disgrace of Egypt? Talk about there in verse 9. Bible scholars don't agree. Spoiler alert, they don't agree on anything. But (laughs) what's important here is that it's God who rolled it away. They weren't earning a free ticket into Canaan through circumcision. God had already brought them in. They were agreeing to receive what the Lord wanted to do, and they were demonstrating that they believed the Lord and trusted Him and wanted closeness to Him more than they wanted plunder or glory in battle or anything else. And they trusted Him enough to obey. They had seen firsthand how the Lord had been faithful to their parents' generation, and yet their parents had been unfaithful, and this group did not want to make the same mistake. Of course, fast forward a few years, a few chapters in the book, We will see Joshua saying to this generation, hey, you've all seen what the Lord has done for us, but you guys are also drifting away now. So choose this day whom you are going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so again, at the end of the book, Joshua renewed his faithful obedience to this loving and faithful God. And so the question is, are we going to be faithful as people? Will we follow the Lord and set aside anything he asks us to set aside, trusting that he knows the best way forward? Settling that issue is the most important thing any of us could do today. We'll close with the lyrics of the old song. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey.